1: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show.
2: This is part two of my discussion with Robert Greene, author of The Daily Laws, but also one of my favorite writers, as I mentioned before. He's the author of The 48 Laws of Power. Uh, another book called mastery another book called the laws of human nature books on war books on seduction he really has just a very deep insight into human nature and he has so many stories to tell about it and in the daily laws he's more autobiographical than ever before so we talk a little bit more about his personal story and some of the ideas from the daily laws part two is available today as well as part one so this is part two I'll ask you about my personal experience I've gone from, let's say, and this is just a a short list, but from being a computer programmer to a writer, to an entrepreneur, to hedge fund manager, comedian, on and on. And I do get that excitement that you're talking about. I do engage in that path towards mastery, but sometimes I feel like, uh, maybe I'm a dilettante, Jack of all trades, master of none even though I do follow my heart on what's exciting me, I, I, that's my, that's my rule.
3: Well, you're, you're very successful and and you're very powerful in your own realm. So, I mean, I don't think it's nothing that's not working there. It's, I think it's more important that you're able to explore and try new things, but the interesting thing that would happen possibly with you, or maybe it already has happened is that you take some of these, cause I can relate to this having had, 60 different jobs that are even more disparate than what you just described. I mean, I did construction work. I worked in a detective agency. I was a hotel receptionist. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But the thing that could be interesting is combining some of these things. I mean, you can't really combine comedy with chess, I don't think. But if you could combine uh, some of the other things that you've learned in some kind of new entrepreneurial realm, that would be very exciting. Yet, There's a lot of people, particularly younger people, who have a a problem now because there is so much information available where they try something for a year or two and they move on to something else in another couple of years and they move on to something else and they never really master anything. And then they're like 31, 32, and they've learned all of these different things, but nothing connects, right? And so it's not that I want you to explore, I want you to try new things, but there has to be kind of a frame of reference right? It can't be, you know, you're trying out being a chef and then you're trying out being a rocket scientist, you know? I mean, there has to be some kind of thing that in, in a vague way connects things. So for me, it was writing. I tried journalism. I tried novels. I tried theater. I tried film. Nothing quite worked. And then I tried books, but it wasn't, you know, I know I worked in a detective agency. It sounds like a contradiction, but when you're a writer, you want all those kind of stupid, boring jobs because you're learning about people and you're accumulating stories. But you want to have something that there's, there's some kind of connection, right, between the things that you're doing that gives it a, a, a something where you, later on you can find common points that you can bring together, where you can create some kind of new business that no one has ever thought of before. And I have a lot of examples in Mastery of people who did that. And then suddenly a connection where they wake up one day and go, this is something that I'm going to start that no one ever thought about. I talk in Mastery about Paul Graham, who um, he studied. He was a hacker. He went to MIT. He studied artificial intelligence. And he ended up kind of getting very bored and frustrated with it. And then he decided to become an artist. And he went to art school and he went in Italy and he was living in Italy and then he came back to New York and he was living in a loft painting and not making very much money, but he was kind of loving it. And he heard an ad on the radio that was touting that the internet, this was 1994 or 5, that was saying, the internet is going to be where we're going to buy things in the future. No one had ever thought of that before, right? There was no place to buy anything on the internet. And he's sitting there painting in his loft and he goes, hmm, with all of my skills with design now, with painting and all I learned in Italy. And all of my skills with artificial intelligence and computers, I'm going to design the most aesthetically pleasing and great store online where you could buy things with the first one. And he created it. Yahoo bought it for like $5 million. And that was the start of his incredible career. He went on to start, you know, a billion dollar businesses like Y Combinator. But he made that connection between these two things that you normally wouldn't connect. And then it kind of came this this sort of perfect storm
2: there. I, you know, and I think the key is connecting, having the ability to connect ideas because you mentioned like, it's hard to go from being a chef to a rock star, but even there, I think maybe it's hard or maybe the key is coming up, you know, having the insight and coming up with the connection between the two. I have no idea what it might be, but you know, it, it's just like, if you look at the, the hierarchy of species, you know, humans are part of the hominids as part of the, whatever, the apes and, and on and on back to mammals and so on. Everything ultimately falls under some, any two parts of this tree fall under some umbrella, no matter how broad you mentioned, com. you know, it's hard to connect comedy and chess, but I'm thinking about it in a meta way. Like you mentioned what Arthur Kessler said that comedy is about taking two, very disparate things and somehow connecting them in a humorous way. So an example might be uh, Andrew Schultz, who was once a a guest on this podcast. Um, He has a joke, I won't tell the joke, but uh, I'll tell the idea, which is that he compares um, good international cooking to wherever women are mistreated the worst. What countries women are, like no one ever says, hey, let's go out for some Canadian tonight. They said, let's go out for Middle (laughs) Eastern. (laughs) So, so, right. So you you laugh because it's like even just a funny concept, connecting these two things and perhaps in chess, oh, this kind of attack works in this one type of opening. Maybe it'll work in this other type of opening somehow, like having the meta ability that you learn from mastering different things could potentially, I don't know, connect two areas somehow. I don't know, because you, you talk a lot about the connection between two ideas and I think, or, or multiple careers and skills. And I think that's very important.
3: Well, that's how the brain works. If, you know, I, I meditate every morning. And when you start meditating, you try and sh- shut the mind up and all the thoughts going on. Suddenly, all kinds of weird associations start happening between things. That's the natural flow of the brain. It's always connecting things together. And I, I, this, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but um, I remember the story in the 1950s. This writer, this friend of a writer once challenged him saying, you know, you always choose stories for your novels that you, you kind of know, but it'd be impossible for you to write something about anything. And the writer said, no, I could write a novel, a good novel about anything. It was like a challenge. The other guy says, okay, all right, I'm going to challenge you. Write a great novel that has to do with drapes. Has to do that's <laughs> It's about the changing new drapes being put up. He goes, all right, I'm going to do it. And he wrote a book about how in an insane asylum, they had to suddenly change the drapes and how it drove everybody crazy and it created all of this drama and turmoil. And it became such a successful novel that they made a book, a movie out of it called The Cobweb, which you can go look and see now in the 1950s with Lauren Bacall, all these famous actors. Very interesting movie. Um, So, you know, that's how the brain works. You can connect anything, right? That challenge, you can take two very disparate ideas and find some point of putting them together and making a great novel, a joke, a new business or whatever. That's, that's true creativity to me.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, you know, and again, I am, I always wonder for myself, like, I, I really do like how you're creative, but you keep it under the umbrella of writing and you know, I might be an entrepreneur for a few years and then write a book about entrepreneurship. And so they're too disparate. Which but, you did. Um, Yeah. And, 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 but then again, but then again, I wonder, oh, would I have gone further as an entrepreneur if I didn't write a bunch of books or would I've gone further as a writer, if I didn't do years of comedy or whatever. And so sometimes I have, I have regret, but you know, I'm also, I always stick to the rule, okay, I have to do what I love doing. And unfortunately for me, it's, it changes a lot.
3: (laughs) Yeah. But but when you do the different things you put, you, you go all in, right? You actually, yeah. you know, I'm not as opposed to people who just learn little things and then give up. You wrote a book. You actually produced a book. You started a business. You have a podcast. You are a, a successful comedian. You are a master chess player. There are plenty of examples I used in Mastery of people like you, you know, more famous. I'm afraid to say, but like Benjamin. It's Franklin, definitely true. Although, <laughs> although we don't know what you'll be like in a hundred years from now, people will be talking about you. But like Benjamin Franklin, you know, he was he was a great writer. He wrote journalists, pamphlets. He was a political figure. He was a scientist. You know, he was a great seducer. I don't know if you want to say that that's part of a skill, but he was, you know, had all these different things. And he was like you. He, you get bored and you want to explore new things. And he wrote books and he tried experiments, et cetera, and he traveled. He had a great life and he was a master of many different things. So that's an equal path I think is very valid and very, it's what you have managed to carve out and it's you it what makes you different what makes you unique. It's what makes you James, as opposed to if you had stayed as a, a, a computer programmer your whole life, you know, I mean, where would you be right now? You wouldn't be a very happy person.
2: Probably not. No. And and thank you for saying that. Um, you know, but it's interesting, you talked about Benjamin Franklin as seduction, you know, as a seducer, but persuasion, which you've written a lot about and, and seduction and so on. This is also an important skill of not only mastering a particular domain, but, uh, mastering life. Where do you think people mess up the most on persuasion? And and you in the book, you, you also describe how one should stay above the fray. So, so the fray I think of as like the massive arguing that happens 24 hours a day now on social media over issues that will be forgotten in weeks or months or whenever. And you know, what, what, what are the, what are the skills of persuasion that you personally have found most successful?
3: Well, the, the thing you want to avoid is arguing or telling people directly what you want them to do. That is violating the most important law of human psychology. People have their own ideas. We're naturally resistant and defensive. We think that what we believe about politics, about ourselves, about the arts, we think it's the most brilliant thing around, right? We, we have that, what I call a self-opinion, right? It's very natural. It's ingrained. And if you suddenly try and tell somebody, well, you're wrong, you're not really, you do have the wrong opinion about politics, you're on the wrong side of things, they are not going to suddenly go, oh, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm going to think about that. You're right. They're going to get angry and defensive and bitter, and you're going to create the opposite effect that you wanted, right? Unintended consequences. You're going to make them more defensive and more entrenched and more bitter. So you don't preach at people. You don't yell at people. You don't argue. Anytime you you give into that, it's not because you have this sort of noble Gandhian idea that you were right and you're going to convince people. Really what's going on is you're a selfish person who believes that you are convinced of the truth and that other people are ignorant and you need to educate them. It stems from your own arrogance, your own ego. It doesn't stem from a good place. So learn that when you try to argue and berate people and tell them what to do, It is not because you are suddenly trying to help them It's because you're trying, you're giving into one of your, your most selfish and weakest impulses, right? So get over that and then make the next step, which is if you're really interested in changing people, because a lot of these people that shout on the internet or whatever, or, or complain about some political thing, they really don't want to change things. They just want to whine and vent, right? That's their main thing. Because if they really wanted to change, they would go through this process of how do I influence people? How do I persuade them? All right. So if your goal is actual influence, if you get over that selfish impulse to just yell and scream and berate people, well, I have to be more subtle. I have to think of where their mind is at. Why do they believe that that Donald Trump is the greatest president? I'm not saying that those people are wrong. I'm just, just putting out a point here. Why do people believe that? Are there maybe some reasons that, are, that, that come from their conditions and circumstances? If I want to change their opinion, maybe I have to understand where their opinion comes from, the roots of it. And then I can make little, small, little bites at it kind of indirectly and make them. The only thing that you want to do is with people. Let's say it's your, your child who won't listen to you, right? And has become very rebellious, like a 16-year-old, etc. Telling him or her, this is what you need to do, stop that, is only going to make them worse. We've all had that experience. You want to go inside their mind, and you want to sort of slowly push them in other directions and get them to think that maybe they don't have the right idea. But to do that, you have to be subtle, and you have to think inside the other person, right? So that's the number one mistake people make. They think they're entrenched in their own ideas. And they're not getting inside of their audience. They're not getting inside of the viewpoint of their customers. They're not getting inside of the viewpoint of the voters who were voting for them. They're not getting inside the viewpoint of the friends or children who have a different mindset. So just making that leap and saying, I'm going to shut up my own ideas that I have, and I'm going to actually try and understand their point of view, suddenly gives you the power to maybe alter it a little bit and maybe even alter your own ideas as well.
2: And so let's take the example of when, you know, you were working on the book with 50 cent and you, sw- and you know, you went from Simon Schuster to Harper and the editor at Harper said, Robert, this is what you need to do. What if you disagreed with that editor and what, at what point do you know if you're being defensive or if you should listen?
3: <laughs> As I said earlier, you can listen too much to other people and you could, you know, make a terrible mistake that way. So, you know, if you, It all depends on the person who's criticizing you. So if you you know, put something out on YouTube and you read the comments below and someone's saying, Robert, you're full of shit, you're not going to give credence to that person because who's that idiot who's just sitting in his room typing that out and doesn't make any kind of constructive comments, right? I'm not going to pay any attention to that. But if an editor at Harper's who's been very successful, who's a very smart individual and makes very salient points about the weakness of my book, then I'm going to listen to him. And I did listen to him because initially what happens when when we're criticized is we get defensive and we get upset. And that's completely natural. It's happened to me many times. It's not like you suddenly ever go, oh, you're right, I'm wrong. There's always that first defensiveness. But then you calm yourself down and you go through that process that we're talking about, the the autopsy that you were mentioned, and you go, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I have to listen. Are they actually coming from, are they attacking me out of politics because they're envious? No, this guy isn't envious of me. He's just a publisher. He's not trying to, to be like me. He has no animus against me. So there must be some truth to it, and I'm going to listen to him. That's the key, is if the person criticizing you, it seems objective, and there's nothing personal about it, then there's probably something you can trust. So you have to kind of look at the source of the criticism.
2: This leads to another question, which you write a lot about. Given the fact that there's so much duplicity and people wear, whether they intend to or not, they wear so many different masks in front of their social groups. I find I'm often a very poor judge of character. How do you think one gets better at that? Because again, you point out some great things about, character that they're not always, sometimes nice people are not so nice. Sometimes mean people are insecure and could be nice. But how do you kind of meet a person and figure out, hey, what's underneath these masks?
3: Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to have the realization that you don't take appearances for reality. So, you know, imagine that you're a child, you're four or five years old, and you have some quality that really irritates people. You're too pushy. You're too aggressive or you're too nice and pleasing or whatever. And your parents and your teachers, they criticize you and you learn that's very painful. So you develop a strategy that now is the strategy of your entire life of disguising that irritating quality because it means you're criticized and it means, you know, people aren't going to listen to you. So you spend your, your, young, your youth, your teen years and older Kind of finding ways to disguise the fact that you're basically insecure or aggressive or, or, or insecure, et cetera. And so people never get to suspect that, right? But underneath, you still remain the same person. Okay. So people are presenting a front to you, a facade that is often not disguising the opposite. It can be disguising the opposite. And I tell people if somebody has a very strong, quality that's so in your face, nine times out of 10, they are disguising the opposite. But sometimes people are just sort of subtly disguising that irritating quality that they've learned to disguise. So get over this notion early on in your life so that you won't suffer that appearances are not reality. So that person in the office who's always smiling, who's always like saying how wonderful you are and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and I don't mean this as a criticism, I'm just talking about reality, that there's probably something going on underneath. Now, they might just be a very pleasant person, and there are people like that, and there's nothing against them. But they also might be this person who is very passive-aggressive, who has actually learned the front of being pleasant and sweet and charming and saying all the wonderful things about you in order to like get you to lower your defenses so they can enter your life and then inflict some kind of pain on you, right? And so you have to become a better judge of people and not trust the appearances and go through a process. Now, you pay attention. We're very good at, we we all have natural bullshit detectors that we just don't listen to that get kind of worn away over the years. And that bullshit detector is in nonverbal communication. So when people are talking to you and they're saying all these wonderful, sweet, wonderful things, but there's something a little bit dead in their eyes. It seems a little bit mechanical. You have the impression that they've said it to a hundred other people in the same way. You have an intuition about it, but you're not listening to that intuition, right? So pay attention to these other things going on. Very good ways of judging people's character. But the most important thing of all is to always tell yourself the appearance that people present is A, it is the reality, but that's pretty rare. B, it's not really the reality. There's something else going on. Or C, it's the opposite. There's something very dangerous going on here. Because if you have a toxic narcissist, and I've worked for people like that, and we've all been involved with them, they don't come in with a little sign saying, I'm a toxic narcissist. They don't display it. They've learned to be very charming, very nice, very listen to you. Then you get involved with them, and it comes out slowly. But I try and show in the laws of human nature and in the daily laws that there are always, always signs of those toxic people before you get involved in them. You're just not paying attention.
2: I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in airbnbs like in about a month i'm going to coco beach which is right next to cape canaveral i'm going to watch some rocket launches i'm going to of course be staying in a very nice airbnb on the beach and it's just such a great experience like the whole world is available to us now because of airbnb but whenever i'm at an airbnb i always realize you know i the home that i left to come to this airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle. And it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama, a new season of The Kardashians starring. The Kardashians, of course, and Grand Cayman Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
2: There's one section I really loved, September 5th. Place yourself in She, S H I H. And it says basically, there's this one line where you say, The essence of strategy is not to carry out a brilliant plan that proceeds in steps it is to put yourself in situations where you have more options than the enemy does. That's definitely important in war, but it's like even important in career or income. Like there's the whole almost stereotype or cliche of diversify your income, have five sources of income. And if your only strategy was to rise up at general motors, you might get fired or laid off and right. you miss out on, uh, you, you took too much risk. Have, having options is the best way to succeed without risk than having clear goals in, in just one path. And I thought that was just important to underline.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, that comes from, uh, from the 33 Strategies of War, the book I wrote. And I went d- heavily into The Art of War by Sun Tzu, which is a very famous, very interesting book about strategy. And I was reading the Sun Tzu and I was thinking, this book is, very, is brilliant, but it's kind of abstract. And I bet in Chinese, it's not so abstract, right? Because you know, there must be another layer. So I bought this version of the Art of War that was annotated, which explained each character in the book and what it really meant, and kind of explained it in kind of literal English. And obviously, I didn't read the whole book that way, but there was this one word "shi," and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but it was this idea of placing the army in a position of power, and the metaphor that he used was when you have a bow and an arrow and you've strung the bow and it's taut and you're about to release the arrow that is shit that's a position of potential energy and power or if you have a boulder on top of a hill a mountain and it's teetering etc and it can fall that is a position of incredible and potential energy and power so shit really meant potential energy right it didn't say whether it could go here or there or where it would attack, it just meant it was in a position where all this momentum and energy would suddenly come behind it. And that was what the original Chinese word meant. This is really interesting. And I I looked at some of the great generals and, and and particularly Napoleon Bonaparte and decided that that was his strategy. He wouldn't place his, he wouldn't attack the enemy army straight on. He would find a position somewhere on the map where he would place Four or five divisions of his army, they'd give him maximum options and potential to attack from many different directions, depending on what the enemy did. So he was using that metaphor of the taut bow and the boulder on the hill. He was putting himself in a position of tremendous energy and momentum. And I thought, as you point out, that this is analogous to life. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written about it. So when, you know, when you're when you looking at a career. You know, if you follow that straight line with General Motors, you're going to end up being, you know, um, you, the job won't exist or or, or it'll be miserable, etc. You want to find a career, a path that allows you options that has open-ended. So you've learned something and now you're working at a startup. And in that startup, you can now learn uh, things where you can maybe start your own business or maybe you learn new um computer skills on a higher level. You can learn about marketing. So let's say you're 20 years old. You have a choice of joining some immensely powerful Wall Street firm that's going to pay you six figures or this small startup in you know in Brooklyn or, or wherever, and it's going to pay you $20,000, but you're going to be among eight people and you're going to see all of the little branches of that business. Putting yourself there is the equivalent of putting yourself in shit because You're going to, you're going to learn all these different things, all these different paths you can take in life, depending on what pleases you. That's a potential position of power. So I think it applies to so many things in life, but
2: yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, my, I, I mentioned earlier, I played in my first chess tournament in 24 years last weekend. And I, there was one skill, which I sort of, realized I had weakness in and and the weakness doesn't matter so much in like blitz chess, but in very slow chess where the games could last five or six hours, it was extremely important, which is that if I only had one plan and I calculated, you know, 20 moves, whatever, how many moves ahead? And I miscalculated the game was over and my weakness was, I had to get used to or, or get used to again, having multiple plans at the same time so I could always fall back. And not, you know, not burn the bridges behind me. Uh, it, 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 it's important in, in anything, you know, we, your career, even, even writing, you have to give yourself outs in some ways. Like if you're writing a story, there has to be many potential ways to, to have a reader emotionally re- respond to it.
3: Yeah. And, and I kind of write my books like that because if my book was just about one little aspect about power, I would get kind of bored. And I think the reader would get bored but i take a subject like power and i make it also about seduction i also make it about the soft forms of power i also make it about the violent side of power etc so every reader can kind of find what they want in it and they can it kind of creates the sort of open-endedness where you read into it what you want to read into it but you know speaking of chess um for for mastery i kind of read a lot about Bobby Fischer probably one of the most brilliant chess players ever and what happened with bobby fisher and maybe it'll happen with you at some point james is he he played so many games of chess since he was like five years old right like mozart or something that he had internalized all of these different patterns all of these different ways a game could proceed so if you were in the middle of a game and it was unlike any board you'd ever see before a pattern. He had seen it before. And he remembered that in the five times he had seen it before, he he moved there, he moved there, he moved there, he moved there. This is the one that worked, right? And maybe it won't work because he's playing a different opponent. Because he had internalized so many patterns in that moment, he could be incredibly creative and he could come up with a move that nobody had thought of before. But it was never a rigid thing. He was never approaching it. Even in the moment where somebody made a move, it wasn't like, ah, the next thing I have to do is this because I did it before. He was always like, no, no, this is a different, I'm playing someone different. This is a different game. I'm going to try something completely different here. So That was part of his brilliance. And maybe you'll, you'll get there. Sometime.
2: Maybe one, one could hope, but he, you know, it's interesting because what he's doing is connecting ideas. Like he's taking the current position connecting it to some other position that he either remembered or, or, you know, in, intuited, like from, from something he had once seen, uh, uh, and, and connected the dots there. I'll tell you an interesting Bobby Fisher story. At some point when he was a kid, I guess he was a little frustrated with his play. So he sort of disappeared for a while. He was known for disappearing throughout his career until his final... Right. Disappearance, but he disappeared for a while. And this was when he was very young, uh, like like fourteen or thirteen years old, something like that. And he studied all of the games of the eighteen hundreds, and he studied them so. And everybody thought, I thought, oh, these are boring games. We're beyond how they played in the eighteen hundreds. But he basically improved upon each game, and so he right. came back into play, having improved upon all these games that people had discarded and they didn't even remember anymore. And Then he won the U S championship, like 11 to zero. He won his first U S championship and it was, it was study and, and discipline like that, that really it's unclear or not how talented he was. I mean, I'm sure he had talent, but it was unclear whether he was the greatest talent ever, but he certainly was probably one of the top three or four hardest working players ever. Uh, he was incredibly hard working. that drove him over the edge a little.
3: There was a high level of creativity there. The other thing is, the other thing that you'd have to say about the story you just related is that he approached it without an ego. So most people would say, oh, the 1800s, they were so inferior to us. We're so much beyond that. He was open to it. And he said, other styles, other ways of playing might actually be better than what we're doing now. So I'm not going to be so rigid. I'm not going to be so judgmental about the past. I can learn from people before me, you know, which is another brilliant thing
2: yeah and then this is related to your story on on she he learned Russian as a kid in order to read their chess magazines Right, right so because right. they were just better players than the Americans Americans right. then were, were very feeble uh now now america is 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 one of the strongest countries but not certainly not then but um so let me ask you this what's uh what's the law of sublime going to be about I, I love the title and I and I'm still having a hard time picturing what what you're going to write about.
3: Oh, okay, well, um, I'll try and explain it um, as well as I can. Basically, the idea is that um, the essence of being a human being is that we're these social animals and that we have to follow these kind of rules and conventions that society imposes on us. These are ways that you behave in the world. Not just ways you behave, but ways you think. You're supposed to this is our reality. you're supposed to think in this way about the world, et cetera. And this kind of time that we live in always comprises, like a, I compare it to a circle. All those rules and conventions about behavior and thinking, they create this kind of limit. This is what how you're supposed to think. This is how you're supposed to behave to be an accepted member of our society. That's extremely human. That circle might change. It's not the same as it was thousands of years ago for people in Pacific Islands to now 21st century America. But it's always a circle. And the thing about humans is the moment you put a create a limit about what we're supposed to do, we're fascinated by what lies beyond that limit, by what is supposedly taboo, by what we're not supposed to think about, what we're not supposed to, to, to do, right? We're interested in it because we don't like the down deep down inside, we don't like the fact that we're not supposed to explore here or do that. There's a perverse side to human nature. So I say what lies just beyond that circle in any direction is what I call the sublime. You want to explore beyond what is accepted, beyond what people tell you you should think, beyond what people tell you you should do. And in exploring that realm, you're opening yourself to a new range of emotions, to a new range of ideas. And it's incredibly liberating and it's incredibly exciting. And the ultimate thing on the other side of that circle, the one thing that never changes is death itself. And so the word sublime from Latin means up to the threshold, up to the threshold of a door. Mm-hmm. So you're peering inside a door to the other side of, the, of that circle. And death is the ultimate door, right? What lies beyond that? And so to have a kind of a brush with death, an encounter with death, is sort of the ultimate form of sublime because you're mm-hmm. really going beyond the actual limits of life itself, right? And so in the book, I will describe people with one of the aspects will be near death experiences. But the irony is, is I had been intending to write this book 17 years ago or so, because it's a subject that fascinated me. And then I got distracted by the 50 cent book, by mastery, by human nature. But my plan had always been that I was going to go jet around the world and I was going to have all of these insane experiences. Scuba diving in the Caribbean, going to Tierra del Fuego, climbing this mountain, and having all these sublime moments. That had been my plan. And then in 2018, I finished The Laws of Human Nature. The last chapter was about confronting your mortality, confronting your death. And I talk about in there about the sublime itself, just what I've described, right? And then, ironically, or I don't know how you want to phrase it, but literally three months later, I had a stroke and I came, as you know, because when I last was on your show, I would just had yeah. it. I was like, this I came this close to dying, right? I had that near-death experience that I had written about two months earlier, but in an intellectual way. So I had had my own like near-death experience. It isn't as strong as some people. It wasn't like, you know, having outer body experiences, but I had weird visions and a weird feeling in my body and a sense of death that was kind of welling inside of me. And so now, this book that was going to be this thing where I was jetting off here and there, and all these abstract ideas became something completely different. First of all, I really literally had experienced what I was going to be writing about, that having that moment changes how you look at the world, changes how you see the sky, changes how you see birds, changes how you see your wife or girlfriend or whomever in the world. Literally happened to me. But the second thing is because I can't jet off and do scuba diving and travel here and there I have to make I have to find the sublime as I'm writing the book in my office here in this room that you're that you're seeing behind me I'm in my chair I can barely I can't even take a hike right now because I can't still can't walk very well and so I have to find it in my mind I have to experience it just by seeing things around me and thinking about them and so now when I write the book I think the reader won't have this impression, wow, I have to jet off to Kathmandu to have this book to do what he's doing here. No, you can have it wherever you are because that's how I had to write the book itself. So it sort of changed from my initial conception of it. And so I describe different forms of this experience. I describe the cosmic sublime, which has to do with the origin of our universe. And then I go into the biological sublime about life itself on our planet. I go into ancient religions and and the kind of sublime experiences that we can still have. I go into childhood. I go into the brain itself, etc. Different angles from exploring outside that circle. That's sort of the idea.
2: And how how can so this it, it sounds really beautiful. This book, like how can someone wake up tomorrow and practice experiencing the sublime in their life?
3: Well, you know what I don't like writing intellectual, academic books. And every book, so that's always been the story of my life. So people write books about seduction. They write it as if there's no juice or sexiness to it because it's written from this academic point of view, right? Mm -hmm. So boring or power or whatever. So I'm not gonna write a book on the sublime like other people have written this very abstract thing. I'm gonna hit you in the reader with ideas about how you can go out and experience it. So in the second part of each chapter, I describe how you can have the experience. And, and I try and make it as practical as possible. So obviously, the cosmic sublime has to do with the Big Bang and the origin of our universe. Well, you can kind of experience it that just by walking outside your house and kind of seeing things about gravity, seeing things about mountains, etc. Knowing that the planet you walk on, all the material and everything inside of your own body originated from the big bang and i go into depth about that and i go into depth about how you can think about your own body and think about the landscapes around you in terms of something rather cosmic and i also describe how on the internet you have now the ability to look at things in the plant and the universe and the cosmos that are unbelievable like they have actually filmed a black hole they took a photograph of a black hole Mm -hmm. and i describe what a black hole is in that chapter and the it's such a thing that you can't even conceive of it they actually took a photograph of it but these pictures that they've taken with the hubble telescope et etc of our universe of of galaxies far far away just looking at those photographs is going to blow your mind they've also recorded sounds from outer space so you can kind of hear they even have somebody record what they think the big bang sounded like you know so mm-hmm. you can you can in your armchair you can have these experiences so every chapter I go into depth about how you can have this kind of awareness and practice it. So I just wrote a chapter about what I call the Pagan Sublime, where I talk about how people looked at the world 4,000 years ago, you know, in a much different context and their religion, et cetera, and how interesting it was. And I describe in the last part how you can go around and walk around your city, your town, your neighborhood, wherever it is, and you can see the world momentarily through their eyes, and how different that was, and how exciting it is to try these experiments.
2: And and let me ask this, although I, I think the answer is almost obvious, but what is the benefit of it? What is the benefit of having sublime experiences?
3: Well, um, on one level, it frees up the mind. So I have this feeling that when you go into your smartphone and you spend so much time, you're literally shrinking, shrinking down to the size to the size of a bit inside your phone, like the incredible shrinking, whatever that movie was, you know, Mm. you're just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Your thoughts are being programmed by Instagram, by Facebook. They're not your own thoughts. Your thoughts are shrinking. You're shrinking until you become this little dot, right? And it's happening to a lot of people. So when you go out and you do the opposite, which is opening your mind up to all these things that I'm describing, you're expanding yourself. You're expanding your mind. You're expanding your consciousness. Number one, that will make you a more creative person in life because you're not going to be having this narrow little vision of the world. You're going to be thinking, wow, this world could have been so much different. There's so many possibilities out there. Since this world might not have existed the way it is, since there might not be sunlight or color, maybe I should think differently about my plans here. Maybe there are other possibilities I never thought of. It's also going to open you up to this reality. It's going to make you... Appreciate things. So I I describe in the second chapter how how the world came about, the earth that we 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 sit on here right now, and and I and I create a picture of the insane odds, the astronomical odds against you and me, you and me, James, sitting here talking on Squadcast or whatever it's called, is unbelievable that it ever happened. And I go through the list of how life almost never started on this planet three billion years ago how complex life was a complete accident i mean multicellular life was a complete accident almost never happened how through evolution there were all these bottlenecks where we how we evolved might never have happened the dinosaurs might not have gone extinct 60 million years ago an asteroid which had just barely hit the planet if it had missed there'd be still be dinosaurs walking around mm-hmm. how Humans nearly went extinct 80,000 years ago. There was only like 10,000 humans on the planet left, and one, and one virus could have wiped all of us out. and then what would have happened? Then there would be Neanderthals would be ruling the world. On and on and on. and then it goes to this: Think of your parents when they met, how unlikely it was that they met and then produced you, right? now multiply that by 70,000 generations which is how many there are going back to maybe the origin of homo sapiens so 70,000 times people connected had sex had children and and they might very easily not have and if they hadn't you wouldn't be here who you are right now so these kinds of thoughts kind of alter how you look at the moment right now
2: yeah it's 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 fascinating and i think i think you're right there is a lot of a lot of pleasure and it's an interesting analogy of of looking at it as the opposite of looking at the cell phone or the i'm uh, the smartphone i mean it's used to be called a cell phone now it's a smartphone and how it shrinks you literally and i think that's really true we get absorbed into these worlds without realizing it and not realizing that they're just screens and that they're not they're not real and so yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that book when's it going to be when are you going to publish it <laughs> Do you take six years to write a book? You you take like a, a year or two.
3: It's good. Oh, it's going to take more than that. Uh, mostly because uh, I'm not complaining, but I can't type. Still can't type with my left hand. Mm. So I have to go through this weird Byzantine process of handwriting things out, of correcting it through handwriting with in four different notebooks, and then dictating it through a dictation software. Then trying to. Uh, so it's taking me longer than usual so long story short it's going to be another couple of years i'm afraid
2: do you think um like obviously you're you're doing physical therapy how how well do you see yourself uh, recovering over time
3: it's been a it's 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 been a, a, up in a roller coaster because sometimes i think i'm on the way there it's been 3 years now oh uh, making progress then some days i feel like i've not uh, progressed at all and so it's very emotionally uh trying. Somebody will come up to me with some new therapy. I'll get all excited about it. Okay, I'll do it. I'll spend thousands of dollars on this. And then it doesn't really change anything. And then I begin to wonder, well, maybe it's me, maybe I'm the problem. These are all common things that people have when they're a stroke. So I originally thought I'd be by now I would be back to typing, swimming, hiking, none of which has happened. I still think I will get there, but it's going to take. I know the actress Sharon Stone had a stroke very similar to mine at a similar age, and she's written about it in interviews, and it took her seven years to get back. Wow, So I might have four more years of this.
2: I didn't know that about her, so she must have and then she had active physical therapy. Like it probably takes a lot of is it work each day?
3: I do like at least an hour and a half, sometimes two hours every day. Um, you know, I have a special bicycle. It's called a recumbent bike. It's like a fancy tricycle that allows me to go up in the hills and get all the exercise I used to get, which is my only form of therapy, but it's really been life-saving. And then, so I do that. And then I do physical therapy every night. I have new therapists who I think are really, really good. And I'm hopeful about that. And I'm following their exercises. I'm just, you know, I, I can't help it. I almost you know i'm almost getting a little bit emotional i can't help but feeling kind of disappointed in how slowly my progress is coming so
2: but at, at the same time though robert it, these books your like the daily laws i found to be so wonderful and so beautiful it's definitely something that I, I as i was reading it i was thinking i'm reading it right now to prepare for this podcast i need to read it also <laughs> when I'm not, and, and I rarely say this, I need to read it now just for me. I have to do a second reading so that I could just enjoy instead of be overthinking, like which one's going to lead, which passage is going to lead to questions and so on. Like it's a different style of reading, and but I enjoyed it so much, and I thought this is going to be so useful to me in my life. I need to read this, and I was thinking specifically of my my daughters and one son. I need them to read it, and I hope uh-huh. they do. So, so it's such a valuable book. I mean, that's why. Also, when I saw you writing this book, The Laws of the Sublime, it it I was really curious like what it's going to be about. And and these are real masterpieces that that you bring into the world. So uh, you know, and I'm always so grateful to to have you on the on the podcast and and talk to you about these things. You basically you it's like I'm getting consult you're Robert Green consulting for free. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, it's always an amazing thing because it, it changes uh, my life. So well, but thank you, thank you for for coming on.
3: Well, I, I want to see your next com- comedy routine about chess. I'm looking forward to that.
2: Yeah, I hope it's I hope it's a comedy and not a tragedy.
3: <laughs> so,
2: well, time will tell. Yeah. So, f- failures first, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Robert. I really appreciate it, and I, I really appreciate the books as well.
3: Thank you, James. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm really good. And by the way, I really loved your book as well.